if you know God in the way we're studying in the scriptures through Christ, you have eternal life. That is eternal life. Eternal life isn't simply existing endlessly. It's being in a right relationship with God in this life. And now as our our dear brother Gary is discovering uh, in the direct unmediated presence of God, the blinding glory, what it must be so amazing for Gary to see. He was over at St. Pete on Wednesday afternoon into the evening and you know, his body just shut down. It was God's time. And so to go from a hospital emergency ward into the third heaven, into the direct presence of God, just think what that must have been like. We, I don't think we have the mental equipment to even imagine it. What an amazing hope. That's eternal life. It's knowing him. And this morning, it's our wrap-up study on this topic. And we want to look at how the Holy Spirit is a very key component in knowing God. So we want to call it taking up, uh, we're going to have the next slide, that the title we want to work with is Taking Up the Master's Cloak. It's from the book of Second Kings. We'll read it in a moment. And that's going to be a picture for us. I want to suggest that Christ himself gives the idea of taking up a cloak as a picture of walking by the Spirit. So let's read some scriptures. I'm going to start us in Luke 24. This, of course, is right at the end of Luke's resurrection account. You are witnesses of these things, namely his death and resurrection, particularly. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. I love that verse. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What a statement. But stay in the city until you have been, now note this word, clothed. What an interesting image to use for the empowering of the Spirit. He refers to it as being clothed, like I'm wearing this jacket. Clothed with power from on high. We'll see in a moment where Jesus gets that. It's right out of the Old Testament. And he led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Some of you might already know where we're going pretty quickly. The idea of being clothed, of a cloak, and being going up into heaven. We'll come back to that. Acts chapter 2, fast forward into the book of Acts. This is the moment when the clothing event happens. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. You know, the point of that little detail, the entire house, is that the empowering of the Spirit is not just for a select few. It's for everybody in the house, namely God's house. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Do you note that? It's not for a select few, this empowering. It's for each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's another 
term for the empowering and the clothing, being clothed with power. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the key to the New Testament is the Old Testament. So let's go to that Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elijah found Elisha plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. This Elisha fellow is minding his own business. We read nothing here that he was on a pilgrimage to deepen his walk with the Lord. Maybe he wanted a better walk with the Lord, but at the moment, it's a routine thing. He was a farmer, and he was plowing his fields, minding his own business. And Elijah was passing by. He comes and casts his cloak upon Elisha. wonder what this looked like, you know, throwing the cloak over Elisha's shoulders. Elijah's, or Elisha's perhaps thinking, what's this all about? Who are you? And then, but at the moment when Elijah does that, something transacts in Elisha's heart. And he knows God has just intervened in his life. And it says, Elisha arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. He's just been recruited. The New Testament corresponding moment to this is some fishermen minding their own business on the sea, by the Sea of Galilee, mending their nets, and a stranger walks up and says, you, follow me. And they drop their nets and follow him, minding their own business. And someone comes with authority and intervenes in their lives and turns things around. Over into Second Kings. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind... Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and they were both standing by the Jordan. Second Kings makes a a fuss over details and locations of where things happen. And the Jordan River is a very significant place in the Bible. That is where, under Joshua, the people of Israel entered the land by crossing the Jordan River. Many centuries later, of course, it's significant for a different reason. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. So here they are, these these two prophets. One's an experienced prophet with real history behind him. The other's like an apprentice prophet. And they're standing by the Jordan. Now they face the same question that centuries before Joshua had faced. He knew he was supposed to lead the people into the land. But there's this river rather inconveniently in front of them. What do they do? And if you go back to Joshua 3, we won't go there today, but Joshua 3 is about God opening the water of the Jordan River precisely as he had previously opened up the water of the Red Sea. The water parted, and they walked across on dry ground. So here they are, standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck 
the water. Let me just comment briefly here. Notice the different means God uses to part water. This recurring image of entry into a place that would be inaccessible if it wasn't for the power of God. With Moses, it was his staff. He holds it up and the Red Sea opens up and they walk across on dry ground. A generation later, it's Joshua. And that time it's the priests because now they have the priesthood. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They put the, the Levites, four of the Levites hold the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And they walk into the water and we're told in Joshua 3, the moment their feet touch the water, the, part, the water parted. Staff, Ark of the Covenant, what now? Something different. The power of God is finding a different place to manifest itself. This time it's an ordinary cloak. Elijah takes this cloak and we're told he rolls it up. And then it sounds like a fairly aggressive moment. He gives the edge of the Jordan River a good whack. And the waters open up till the two of them, we're told in verse 8, could go over. Here's that little phrase again. On dry ground right back to the Red Sea right back to the entry into the land under Joshua dry ground dry ground if you feel like you're in the middle of the stormy sea at the moment you call on the God of Elijah he makes dry ground appear in the middle of the, of the, the, the river and when they had crossed Elijah and Eli- Elijah said to Elisha Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. What an amazing question. Centuries earlier, I was about to say centuries later, but centuries earlier, God had asked that same question of someone else you've all heard of. King Solomon. Ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And of course he asked for wisdom. So now Elijah asks his understudy, his apprentice, Elisha, ask me for whatever you want. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now that's a big ask. You read back in 1 Kings about the ministry, the mission of Elijah. This guy was not small potatoes when it came to power and anointing the divine uh, prophetic authority called fire out of heaven and defeated the prophets of Baal. He visited Mount Sinai and had almost a replay moment of Moses at Sinai, the presence of God in the storm and so forth. So Elisha says, oh, you're offering me anything? Okay, your whole walk with God and knowing God, I want to have that times two. That was a cheeky request. Verse 10. We'll come back to that in a moment. And Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you. We need to explore that briefly in a moment. Elijah's telling him, his, his friend, yeah, you'll get the double anointing on a condition. You have to see it happen when I go up into heaven. Now, why is that? But if you do not see me, It shall not be so. More of that in a second. Verse 11, And as they stood, pardon me, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. 
And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. You know, where did the horses come from? It sounds to me like they came from heaven. Maybe I'll get a horse when I go to heaven. Maybe Gary's already got a horse. I don't know. There's, where did the horses come from? And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes. Another significant detail in this story. Elisha takes hold of his own clothes. He's just been, well, the cloak's going to come in in a moment. But the first thing we see happen, he takes his own garment and he rips it in two. He took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces and he took up the cloak of Elijah. Notice that. An exchanging of cloaks, an exchanging of garments. He rips one and he puts on the other. He took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. The Jordan, here we are again. Verse 14. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Now, I'm going to argue that that scene at the end of Luke's resurrection account is modeled on what I just read you from 2 Kings. And we need to look at both this Elisha and the cloak and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost if we're going to learn to walk by the Spirit. And part of knowing God is walking by the Spirit. So, taking up the Master's cloak... There's four things we see Elisha do that we need to do. Taking up the the master's cloak. One, he recognized the master's authority. The first time we meet Elisha, he's in his field, as we said earlier. He's simply minding his own business, plowing, a routine part of running a farm. And Elijah comes to him across the field. It would be interesting to imagine what this maybe looked like. Maybe he walks out across the field, meets him out in the middle of the field where he's plowing, and Elijah then takes off this cloak he himself is wearing and throws it over Elisha's shoulders. And Elisha recognizes what's going on, that God's in this. This is not just a routine, everyday thing. He surrenders his future. He actually takes the animals... He sacrifices them, offers them up as an offering to the Lord, and he goes with Elijah. He sees the authority God has invested in Elijah, and he surrenders his life to it. He let God speak into his life through Elijah. There was an authority on the prophet Elijah. And one of the reasons Elisha was enabled to take up the master's cloak You know, when you go on and study the life of Elisha, he did more miracles than his mentor did. There was something in Elisha 
that became suitable ground for the promise to take hold, to take root, and to sprout. Part of it is he recognized his master's authority. Now, corresponding to this, another correspondence point of this scene and then the New Testament, think again of Simon Peter mending his nets for the umpteenth time, minding his own business, mending his nets on the shore of the, 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 the beach of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walks up and says, you follow me. The nets go down onto the sand. Simon stands up and follows Jesus down the beach. They recognize the authority of the person calling them. Another way Elisha recognizes his master's authority happens at the end of his earthly connection with Elijah. It happened at the beginning, with the cloak over his shoulders when he's plowing this field. That's how it begins. But it ends at the other end, historically, when he sees him go up into heaven. Now think of the honor that God is affording to Elijah. Not many people get this kind of an entrance into heaven moment. Enoch was taken up in Genesis 5, I think it was, but it wasn't quite so dramatic. When it came to Elijah, there was almost a theatrical moment. Horses, chariots, fire. And he goes in this roaring whirlwind. I want to suggest that at least part of what that's all about, why God does this, is that he, God, was honoring Elijah. And Elisha was there to see it. Whoa, oh, this wasn't just no ordinary bloke. This guy is, whoever he was, he was key to God's whole ministry to Israel. When Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration, Peter, James, and John get invited up to the top of that mountain to see the transfiguring. But who else shows up? Moses, representing the law, and Elijah representing the prophets. And for the Old Testament, Israel had a habit of a shorthand expression for the whole Old Testament. They called it the law and the prophets. Representing the law, Moses. Representing the prophets, one man, Elijah. He's a key person in God's revelation to Israel. And now Elisha is beginning to see that. He sees him go up into heaven and he's afforded this unique honor in all of Scripture. He sees him ascend. And parallel again with that, remember Simon Peter, minding his business, mending his nets, follow me, and he does. At the other end of Peter's earthly connection with Jesus, he is there in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, when the apostles witness, I witness, Christ ascending into heaven. And as it's Acts chapter 1, verse 9, I don't think I have it in the PowerPoint. Acts chapter 1, I believe it's verse 9. As they, the disciples, as they were watching, he was lifted up. And a cloud, same cloud from Mount Sinai, the glory cloud, same cloud that was there at the transfiguration. And a cloud hid Jesus from their sight. He didn't get the chariots and all that, but... When he went into heaven, what he got was a bazillion times bigger than what Elijah got because we're told that he sat at the right hand of God. That is utterly, literally unique. So both of them recognized the master's authority. 
Simon Peter goes on after this moment of seeing his master Jesus ascend. Shortly thereafter, he goes and he preaches on the day of Pentecost. And one of the things he declares to the, to the thousands of people listening is that the Jesus you all saw crucified, and some of you had a hand in it, is now seated at the right hand of God. In an Israelite Hebraic worldview, there is no position of greater honor than that, being seated at God's right hand. Christ is now the enthroned Lord of heaven and earth because he's seated at God's right hand. Okay, taking up the master's cloak, if we want to walk by the Spirit, if we want to take up the master's cloak, we need to recognize our master's authority. Our master is not Elijah. Our master is Jesus. Do we see his lordship? Well, I let him interrupt my life the way he did Simon Peter and the other fishermen on the Sea of Galilee there. You follow me. Will I let him do that? Will I let him alter my priorities? Taking up the master's cloak, what qualified Elisha to do this? Second thing, he was eager for more. In 2 Kings 2.9, Elijah says, ask. Ask, what would you like me to give you? As we said earlier, Elijah had a pretty impressive resume of signs and wonders. I mean, heavy-duty stuff. Major, fire out of heaven, feeding multitudes in the wilderness, raising the dead, and so forth. I suspect most of us, if we've been in that moment when someone on the, of the stature of Elijah said, what would you like me to do for you? that you see in me, of my anointing, or something like that. Probably most of us would think something like, well, if, maybe if I could have like 10% of what you've got, I'd be really happy. For me to have 10% of what Elijah had would be progress from where I am now. I think I can say that. What's Elisha asked for? There's no 10% trying to not make too much of a fuss, ask for a respectable 10%. He asks for 200%, what you have, and double. I'm told that, although I, can't, I haven't verified this for myself, I, I'd like to. If you go through the Elijah stories and talk them up, how many signs and wonders Elijah does, it comes out at seven, and they're pretty heavy duty, most of them. If you talk up the signs and wonders that Elisha does, It's 14, which sounds like double, seven. So he got what he asked for. He asked for more. There's been criticism over the years of the charismatic movement. Some of, a lot of it, fair criticism and understandable. And one question that some have raised that are non-charismatics is you guys always want to have some kind of new buzz, more goosebumps. You're never satisfied. Can't you just, Christ has died to give you eternal life. You sh- that should be enough. Well, you know what? I agree with that. That, that. Christ himself is all we need. However, that same Christ who is in himself all we need, he says, blessed are those who hunger. 
If you feel like you want more, that's a commendable desire. Christ says so. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. So go on wanting more and ask God for more. That qualifies you to take up the master's cloak. Taking up the master's cloak, the third thing Elisha did that we can learn from, he renounced human strength. He renounced human strength. When he sees his master ascend into heaven with the chariots, the the scripture says he tore his garments. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament or the New, you'll know that in that culture, to tear a garment was a sign of grief or a sign of dismay. Sometimes when something really wicked would happen, like a blasphemous act, some immorality would be exposed. In the Old Testament, the priests or whoever, would, when, in, on hearing about it, that Israel had got whipped in battle. The priests or even the kings, they would rip their garments in dismay. At Jesus' own trial, when Caiaphas says, all right, no more messing around here, yes or no, are you the Christ? Mark chapter 14, verse 62, yes. At which point Caiaphas rips his garment in two because he considers it blasphemy. So, or you, you blast, pardon me, you tear your garment when you receive um, grievous news, like the death of a loved one, something like that. So now, Elijah, pardon me, Elisha is now, now realizing he's separated from his mentor. And maybe we'll never on earth for sure we'll see him again. And there's a sense of loss. We, miss, we already miss Gary Middlestad. And Elisha's realizing, I'm going to miss him. So he tears his garment. Now, that's the tearing of the garment in 2 Kings um, 2.12. Part of the meaning of that moment is just that grief. But I want to suggest, when you look at it carefully in the context, and in, particularly when you include verse 13, right along with verse 12, it doesn't just represent grief. It was that, but it was more. Because he tears his garment in verse 12, and in verse 13, very importantly, dramatic, this is a drum roll moment, get ready, he takes up another garment. One that had supernatural anointing attached to it. So by part of, stay with me, I'm trying to express about four ideas in one sentence. Along with the grieving, he's renouncing something. He's realizing, hey, it all falls to me now. Whatever God was doing through the prophet, in some measure now it's going to come over to me because my mentor has gone up to heaven and he provided that, that I would have his cloak. His cloak has now come down to me. Oh, what's this going to be all about? He's realizing whatever God's going to be asking of me, I'd better have his power helping me because in my own strength I will not be able to to do it. 
So he makes a decision, and I hope all of us either have made this or are prepared to make it, to renounce human strength. You should have had one of these little flyers on your chair. Could you just, if you've got one, can you pick it up? Let's pick it up. Some of you maybe saw this and thought it was my sermon title, Living by My Own Opinions. It's not the sermon title, mercifully. This is the idea and a description of the, a, a way of living that Elisha renounced. When I count to three, I'd like you all to, that are holding one of these things to take it and tear it in two. Okay? On the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, I love that sound. <laughs> There's not a person in this room that doesn't need to do that. Myself included. Myself especially. I'm not going to be in a position to pick up Elijah's cloak to walk by the Holy Spirit of God sent at Pentecost unless I've done this. He renounced human strength. Fourth, finally, taking up the Master's cloak. He relied on the gift of God, the cloak. After his mentor has gone up into heaven, Elisha returns to the river, to the Jordan River. It sounds to me, as I read that little scene, it wasn't very far away. The ascending of Elijah seems to have happened near the Jordan River. So he returns to the river that recently he's crossed already, probably the same day, with his mentor. He's facing the same river again. Remember that this, this location in the land was sort of pregnant with spiritual meaning. It was, consistently represents a barrier that human ability cannot cross. It corresponds to the Red Sea. Moses had Pharaoh's army behind him, murderously chasing them, but in front of them an impassable barrier, the Red Sea. God stepped in, opened it, dry land, they walk through, Pharaoh tries it, he drowns. A generation later, another crossed the water moment, an an impassable barrier, an impossible barrier. How does Joshua get these people across this river into the land that God had promised them? supernaturally. It was an impassable barrier. There was no way in the natural Joshua could get the people through. Elijah had already demonstrated it probably earlier the same day, and now it's Elisha's turn. How will I get across? How will I deal with this? And he asks himself the all-important question. He asked himself this question. Maybe he says it out loud, and there was other people within earshot. We don't really know. He says this, where is the God of Elijah? Where is the God of Elijah? I've got something in front of me. I've got something facing me that I realize in my own self, I totally do not have the resources to deal with this. 
I shared a few weeks ago when I was most recently up at the front here about Velma's and my raccoon adventures this summer. There was somewhere under one of the, the roof or somewhere on the soffits a raccoon had gotten in. And he was clawing around all night and scratching and what it was a horrific thing. Well, praise the Lord, maybe some of you are praying for us. We got rid of the raccoon. However, <laughs> he had friends in the local Spence Street squirrel community. So he put the word out among his squirrel friends, hey, you need a cheap place to live, 434 Spence. There was a hole under the eaves trough. As recently as this morning, I got up early, made a pot of coffee, was dusting off this sermon, and I could hear it. This floor, the, it's a slanted ceiling in there because it's the third floor of the house. So just inches from the top of my head and my brain, or what's left of it, I could hear this. I was going crazy. Velma will tell you, I, when it comes to sounds, I'm probably the most irritable person in the province of Manitoba. Maybe all of Canada. I couldn't cope with it. I thought, Lord, please help me. And then on a much more significant level, losing Gary. I was with him that afternoon. We didn't know what was hours away. I went over to his house and we had lunch together. He had a spinach salad and I had a hamburger. And he was telling me his plans of what he wanted to do. He asked me if I would help him on the computer to write his, his life story. I said, yeah, okay, yeah. He had all these plans. Next morning, I got a phone call from Ken Peters. Gary died. I, I, was, I couldn't speak. So we're, we're working our way through that. And, you know, maybe you've got a Jordan River in front of you at the moment. You think, there's one sh- thing I can say about that river. I don't know how to get past it. An issue in your life, in your family, in your emotional machinery, whatever it is, and you look at it, I don't know how to get past it. I simply can't do it. So Elisha, seeing this river, his mentor is gone. He says, where is the God of Elijah? It's his way of realizing if he doesn't reach out to that God and find a way to release the power of that God, he, Elisha, will not get across this impassable barrier. He had a choice. This is why the cloak thing comes in, and this is why the torn pieces of paper really do matter. If you're facing a Jordan, if we're facing Jordans, we need to be ready to renounce human strength and to lay hold of something that's a strength from beyond ourselves. The church in the book of Acts, I hope you've read Acts a few times, and read it honestly. You know, the church didn't get it all right. They had their issues in those days. They had problems. There was sin. There was racial strife, Jew-Gentile strife. There was uh, persecution. They had some Jordan rivers they had to get across. So how were they going to do it? They had to learn to take up the master's cloak that had descended onto them on the day of Pentecost. That cloak was a gift. Acts 2.38, it's called the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
taking up the master's cloak. Who am I turning it over to in a moment? I need to know, okay? Aaron. Taking up the master's cloak, I want to leave us with this thought, is a choice. It's a choice. I can just forge ahead in sheer stubbornness or whatever I want to call it. I'll get through this. I'll deal with it. Stupid squirrels. Or I can say, Lord, you're in this. You made those squirrels. You know what's going on. Maybe you're more concerned about me learning patience than you are about getting rid of the squirrels. A radical thought. That's called learning to take up the master's cloak. That's called learning to walk by the Spirit. You know what? It's a choice. I'm wearing this nice wool sport coat this morning. I really like this. I bought it when we lived in England. Had to get the sleeves shortened, which is a common thing for me. I have short arms. You know how I'm wearing it today? Before I left the house, I went to the closet and took it off the hanger and I put it on. You with me? Living by the Spirit means putting on the cloak. Putting on a dependence, a conscious dependence and reliance. Renouncing human strength and putting on something different. None of you are wearing what you're wearing right now by accident. It didn't just jump out of the closet and land on your shoulders. You put those clothes on. Today, let's commit ourselves to being a church that puts on the Spirit. Taking up the Master's cloak, it's how you know God. It's how we walk by the Spirit. It's how we have eternal life.